What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Dismantling the carceral state is a mission this show is committed to. Our show, Law and Disorder, is an experiment in whether or not a radical radio program can be in true and genuine partnership with movement. Movement to dismantle the status quo and rebuild a more just, humane, and equitable world. Our mission is to expose, agitate, and build. In today's interview, we are going to do some exposing and agitating on an issue not unfamiliar to these airwaves or to our listeners. We're going to continue our conversation about the violence of the foster care system and the fallacy that it is an institution that protects children. Our guest today is Roxana Ascarian. Roxana is a Dallas-based journalist whose work has appeared in the Washington Post, New York Magazine, Slate, Texas Monthly, among other publications. Ethan Brown, best-selling author of Murder in the Bayou, has praised her for her, quote, meticulous and empathetic investigative reporting that stretches from California to Texas and many places in between, end quote. Her book that we will be discussing today, which is indeed meticulous and empathetic, is We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America. Good morning, Roxana. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Let's dive into the story that is at the center of the book. Six children from two different birth families, two sets of siblings, adopted by a white lesbian couple who, after what appears to be reported incidents of abuse that were not followed up on, drove these children, black children, off a cliff. Walk my listeners through what happened in March of 2018. So uh, it was the early morning hours um, of the, it was March 26, 2018, and a tourist who had pulled off at a lookout point at the Pacific Coast Highway, saw a overturned vehicle at the bottom of a cliff. Investigators found several members of a family, which was the Hart family, Jennifer and Sarah Hart, a married couple, and several of their adoptive Black children. Other children were found later, and one of the kids, Devante, was never found. Uh, investigators quickly realized that the car did not break before it went over the side of the cliff. And so they began investigating it as a potential murder-suicide. Um, at that point, reporters around the country began piecing together the history of the Hart family in which they were investigated by CPS in three different states where they had lived with the children. Um, I just, for my listeners, because they're going to know that stretch of highway, it's um, off of the coast of the one, and it's actually not uncommon for accidents to happen. But to your point, there were no signs that there was an attempt to break. It's also not uncommon for people never to be found again. Can you tell us the names and ages of the children that were in the car? Sure. Um, So it was Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail. They were from one sibling group. And Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra were from a second sibling group. Um, Their ages spanned from 12 to 19. And yeah, what was happening at the search, there was a search party that was called and um, the tide had come in and gone out and there was a storm. And so the conditions were really difficult for searchers to, um, to find the children that weren't still in the car when investigators came upon the scene. 
One of the things you established pretty early on in the book in terms of your intentions or uh, is about lifting up the stories of the birth parents and the children. And you talk about how that's very rarely what happens when there are conversations about the foster care system in the public. Why does that matter? And what 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 is the impact of of not humanizing the birth parents and these children? I think the impact is huge because we have a very skewed perception of who is involved with the child welfare system. Um, and, and, you know, the we have this idea that CPS becomes involved with families when there's serious abuse. And therefore, we have very low empathy for the people that are involved because many of us don't know that the vast majority of cases that CPS investigates are over neglect and not abuse. And neglect is often confused for poverty. So for me, I got involved with the story because I got a breaking news assignment to uh, find one of the birth families um, who lived in Houston. And and that's where I was living at the time. And so for me, that's where I entered into the story. But it was also the piece of the story that uh, many other reporters failed to notice and report on. And I felt that it told a much more complete story about this tragedy than what we were seeing uh, in the mainstream news. And I want to turn to that in just a second. I just want to tug on a thread uh, that you uplifted in your answer. And that's that the foster care system or child air quotes, protective services is supposed to protect children in theory from harm. Can you talk about the fact that so many children don't experience actual abuse until they enter the system? Yeah, because so many of the cases involve neglect, it often looks like housing instability or drug issues or mental health stuff, which are situations in which parents really could use extra support. But uh, CPS isn't really able to provide any of that support because they're basically set up as a punitive system. And so even though there might not have been actual abuse in the home, kids are getting removed every day and they're ending up in a system that we know harms kids and that we know uh, really poorly affects the outcomes um, in their lives because they often experience abuse They um, are medicated at much higher rates than kids outside of the system, and they experience placement instability. So they're often moving around even for stuff that's just like bureaucratic reasons. And because of that, kids are basically, um, their trauma histories are extensive once they enter the system. Jennifer and Sarah Hart uh, lived in Minnesota. The kids were murdered in California, but this story really starts where you're based in Texas. That's where all of the children were from, where their birth families were from. Can you talk to us about the foster care system in Texas at the time that this all begins? Sure. Um, So as I said, there's two separate birth families, but i first encountered the Davis family, and that is the uh, the family of Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra. And they were actually the second set of children that the Hart women adopted. They are from Houston. They live in Houston. And so um, the Harris County courts that looked at their case were 
notorious for racist behavior, like outwardly, vocally racist behavior in the courts. And they were also notorious for a basically a corrupt pay-to-play system in which the attorneys that got appointments in the court were made to contribute to the judges' political campaigns. And this was extensively documented in local reporting at the time, um, which the kids were adopted in 2008. And so that was the first family that I looked into, and it became very clear that the reasons for their removal were not what an average person who doesn't know that much about the child welfare system might think, um, and particularly was very different than the picture that Jennifer Hart had painted of those kids' birth families. Let's let's talk about the birth family uh, of, of, of Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra. Let's start with Sherry, their birth mother. What can you tell us about her? Sherry grew up in the fourth ward in Houston, um, where she witnessed the, the murder of her mom when she was a child um, by her abusive partner. And Sherry had struggled with cocaine uh, use for years, and she had had um, a, a set of children prior to these kids who she also lost to the system. And she was a teenager when that happened. And she was 12 years old when her mom was murdered. And I think that, um, you know, for a birth mom to lose their kids is so crushing that it really affects your ability to, um, to be a parent because it's like an, it's like a, the state is telling you that you can't be a parent, right? That you are not good enough to be a parent. And I think that, was something that Sherry struggled with. But there were people in the Davis family that cared a lot about the children and that were stable and that were sober. Um, One of those people was Sherry's partner, Nathaniel Davis. Um, And another one of those people was Priscilla, who was the kid's aunt. And it was Priscilla who had the kids when they were finally removed from the family And the reason for the removal was that Priscilla, who had a full-time job at a hospital, um, needed childcare for the kids one day. And her daughter, her grown daughter, normally provided that, but she wasn't able to. And so she asked Sherry to watch the kids while she went to work. And a caseworker stopped by unannounced during that time and removed the kids immediately on the spot because Sherry had terminated her rights and was not allowed to be with the children. It, that is like it, there's like just series tragedy after after tragedy, and and that is one of the great tragedies of, of this case is is that both Nathaniel and Priscilla, who would have been fit to raise the children, um, were not allowed to do so, and were not actually supported or actually obstructed by the state in doing so. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more broadly about some of the obstacles and biases that exist in the foster care system that make bloodkin stepping in more difficult. You say on page 97, quote, where the Davis family, the bloodkin, had encountered resistance in the system, the hearts were met with the benefit of the doubt, end quote. Yeah, I think this case makes it super clear that there is such a disparity in how birth families, especially Black birth families, are treated uh, versus adoptive parents. Because 
Priscilla, you know, she was a stable person. She had moved into a bigger apartment to accommodate the kids. Um, at that time, uh, Devante and Jeremiah and Sierra, their older brother, Dante, was also with them at this time. So Priscilla had four more kids in her home. Um, Texas at the time didn't pay kinship placements, monthly payments, like they paid for foster parents. So um, she was struggling, you know, her her family expanded rapidly and she was struggling, but instead of support, like in the form of childcare, in the form of monthly payments that might help her obtain that childcare. Um, and again, these are things that foster parents get as a routine, right? They get what's called respite care where, um, you know, essentially childcare that they don't have to pay for and they get these monthly payments. And, you know, there's a federal mandate that a preference needs to be shown to biological family and fictive kin. So people who have known the child their whole lives. Um, but we see how it plays out so often that, those people are treated with a really punitive uh, framework where they can't do anything wrong and they're being surveilled, basically. Whereas what happened with the Hart women was that there were consistent signs of alarming abuse of the children that went, even when investigated, went unpunished and the kids were unable to, you know, they never removed the kids and the kids were not safe. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Roxana Iskarian about her book, We Were Once a Family, A Story of Love, Death, and Child Removal in America. And Roxana, I want to get to the next set of children and to their families, but I think we've said the names Jennifer and Sarah Hart enough times that we do need to spend just a little bit of time on what we know about them and what information about them emerged post this tragedy. Yeah. So Jennifer and Sarah were... Um, a, a white couple, they both grew up in South Dakota, in small town South Dakota. Um, they, when they started, um, so essentially they found the kids from this Texas website that lists children who are up for adoption. Um, they decided to adopt. It's kind of unclear what their motivations necessarily were, um, but they had a pretty easy time adopting from Texas. They did it twice with two years apart, um, before the Davis kids were formally adopted, there was already allegations of abuse against the women for uh, harming one of the kids in the first group that was adopted. So that didn't seem to maybe register for Texas officials. It wasn't in the, it wasn't in any records, um, that I could see. And, uh, once all of the kids were adopted, they um, there were more alleg allegations of abuse. Uh, teachers reported that the kids were really hungry and uh, some of them had bruises. Uh, Sarah Hart, one of the women, pled guilty to domestic violence for abusing one of the kids. Um, that was the first major charge against the women. Um, she served probation. And they immediately pulled the kids out of public school. Um, and then they moved to Oregon, where they again had another 
CPS investigation that ended up being unfounded, even though doctors in Oregon found that five of the six kids were so small that they weren't even on the growth charts for their ages. Um, And then they moved to Washington. And what preceded their drive to California was yet another attempt at initiating a CPS investigation uh, from Washington officials. Okay. I want I want to turn back to uplifting the stories of the children and their birth families. Let's talk about the second set of children. I mean, they were the first set uh, adopted, but the, the second group, Marquise, Hannah, and Abigail. Um, what do we know about them, their birth family, and, and talk a bit about their mother, Tammy? Yeah. Um, so I ended up finding the birth family of Marcus and Hannah and Abigail, um, by finding the the family name in a parcel of records that the Washington Sheriff's Department released to the public, um, I tracked down what turned out to be their grandmother, and it quickly became clear. I tracked her down on Facebook. It quickly became clear that she had no idea what had happened to the kids. None of them did, and this was six months after the crash. So it was a huge national news story that, you know, millions of Americans heard about before the family of the children were ever informed. So that was the first, um, that was really challenging for me as a reporter. I began to realize just how dehumanized that birth families really are in the system where there's no legal, because they have no legal rights, nobody is required to inform them, but it's more than that. It's that officials really don't even consider thinking of them as family members. Um, so when I, when I first talked to Tammy, she, um, she was having a mental health crisis when she heard the news. Um, Tammy has struggled with her mental health for much of her life. Um, Tammy's white. So these three kids are biracial. They're, um, all three of them half black with different dads. Um, so Tammy's issue was housing instability and also a lack of really support in any in any stable way. So the kids were actually removed for medical neglect involving a time where Hannah was really sick and Tammy couldn't find a ride to the hospital. And because she had two other kids, they weren't allowed to ride in an ambulance. So essentially she ended up calling her caseworker who picked her up and took everyone to the hospital and immediately uh, gave her removal paperwork. I want to go back. I, I, I want you to talk a little bit because you, you mentioned medical neglect and you, you talk about some of the ways medical interventions happened in the cases of these kids. One of the young boys that was repeatedly drugged to sedate him. Can you talk about the intersection of medical abuse and the foster care system? That's a good question. Um, I think it's you can see it in the case of Dante, who is the older brother of Devante and Jeremiah and Sierra. Um, he entered the foster system and he was passed up for adoption because of his, quote, uh, behavioral problems. And, you know, Dante was 10 when he was removed from his aunt's house and he was old enough to understand 
that he was being removed permanently from his family and he lashed out in an understandable way. But instead of being met with any understanding or care, he was heavily medicated with psychotropic medications, um, like sometimes five or six at the same time. Um, that's, that's, I think, medical abuse. <laughs> uh, he also experienced physical abuse in, the, in this restrictive treatment center, uh, which is basically an institution for foster youth. Um, and then you see Tammy on the other side of it, who was really struggling with access to uh, health care that was really about, I mean, she didn't have a car. <laughs> so, you know, she, she didn't get her kid to the hospital fast enough, according to the doctor. Um, and then they actually charged her with medical neglect. So not only did she get her kids taken away from her, but she was, um, she was given like a bunch of fines for, for this charge of medical neglect, which she couldn't pay because she was living in poverty. And because she didn't pay the fines, she ended up having to spend six months in jail. Um, this is like a really good example, a very clear example of being extremely unhelpful, right? Because you can see various ways that she really needed support. Um, and she was treated like just so punitively, not, you know, because the loss of your kids is worse really for a parent than almost any punishment. Yeah. And, and what happened to her is also an example of why I started this interview talking about our commitment to dismantling the carceral state, because I really think it's important to highlight that the foster care system, child protective services is just another arm of the carceral state, and they dance with each other in ways that are incredibly damaging to our communities. I think another way, Roxana, that we see medical abuse um, is with what our what our what our kids are diagnosed with. So you mm -hmm. talk about Dante uh, being diagnosed. I think it was with uh, oppositional defiance disorder as well as ADD, and mm -hmm. and this this is what happens to Black children and in particular Black boys specifically. And that instead of looking at the conditions of their lives, right, that that the way in which we run this world causes, um, the system blames them, the children, tells them that there is something wrong with them. Yes. And I think that is so clear in Dante's story. Um, you know, the way I got in a lot of this information was that Dante shared his foster care case file with me. Um, it was 4,000 pages. And um, you know, he entered the justice system through the juvenile justice system as a teen. But even before then, when he was living in an institution that very closely resembled a prison-like place. I mean, it's not a home. Uh, it's not a home. It's not a family home. There are not parents there. It's staffed by very underpaid uh, staff members that, you know, the conditions are ripe for abuse. And I think in Dante's case, exactly what you said with like his behaviors were so understandable. If you recognize that he lost not just his parents, but he lost his siblings. He lost access to them completely. And, you know, page after page in the case file is Dante begging and pleading with his caseworker to like if he could call his siblings, if they could visit each other, if he could, you know, um, after they got adopted, he asked so many times that if he could reach out and call them on the phone, that they actually did reach out to Jennifer and Sarah. And 
asked if if he could call them and and they said no. Roxana, what does Dante say about the fact that his siblings are dead? H- how did this impact him? Uh, um, so when I first met Dante, he was in prison. He was incarcerated at 19, almost, you know, just a year after he became an adult. His, his family chose to wait to tell him because uh, they were worried. He was supposed to get out in the fall, and they were worried that if he heard he would lose it and and he might not be able to get out. So he, um, even while he was in prison had every time, you know, I brought his family up to visit him and they, and he asked them like, okay, when I get out, we have to find my siblings. And, um, he said, he told me that when he found out that they were murdered, that he just grew cold. He said that that was the last little hope he had in his life that he was going to be able to reunite with them. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Roxana Ascarian about her book, We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America. Um, Throughout the book, Roxana, you quote someone that we've had on the show, uh, Dorothy Roberts. Um, We interviewed her about her book, Torn Apart, which you referenced. And you uh, quote her as writing, that family destruction has historically functioned as a chief instrument or group oppression in the United States. Uh, multi-part question here. Uh, what does that mean to you? You know, what is she saying there? And and how is that fact um, tied to the history that helps shape the foster care system as we know it today, particularly as a system that targets and negatively impacts children and families of color? Yeah, I think um, as I was digging into this story, I did a lot of research on the history of the origins of the system. And it helped me really understand that the system, far from, uh, you know, because we have this conversation about disproportionality, right? We know that Black kids and Indigenous kids particularly are overrepresented in the foster care system across the country, Um, But we sort of talk about it as if it's just this tricky problem to solve in the current day. But if you look back at the history of the system, we see the very earliest origins in things like orphan trains, where they would take kids living in poverty off the streets in New York City and ship them to be farm laborers for families in the Midwest. And we see things like residential schools for Native American children who were forced to come, uh, to be taken from their homes and, you know, quote unquote, re-educated, um, you know, in these very abusive places that stripped them of their heritage on purpose. Like that was the whole goal of it. And so, and, you know, I mean, the history of slavery <laughs> in this country and, Um, family separations were like a huge part of the trauma that was inflicted on purpose uh, against Black people and Black families. And so when we start to understand family separations as a tool of genocide, uh, which it is, um, and has been used by colonizers around the world, um, we can see how this disproportionality is not just like a tricky problem that we haven't figured out how to solve, but it's 
actually the base, it forms the basis of how the system functions. And that's a big difference, right? I mean, it's radicalizing to realize that it's always been this way and it's this way on purpose. Right. There's a there's one more phenomenon that you talk about that some folks may not have thought about previously, um, which I think is relevant as we're having this national fight around reproductive rights. Um, you talk about what the time period of World War II and women having children out of wedlock, abortions being illegal, and the stigma that forced thousands of women to send their children into foster care. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because the children, the adoptees of this era, which they call the baby scoop era, um, they really, their activism has really shifted, I think, the the larger discourse around adoption uh, in this country. I think that the media portrays adoption almost exclusively through the lens of adoptive parents. Um, and in that, you know, and that's a big part of why we never hear from birth mothers, right? Um, and, and, and when you don't hear from birth mothers and you don't hear from adoptees, because adoptees are more likely than um, kids who stay with their families <laughs> to have a, a litany of mental health issues and um, increased rates of suicide, right? And so these things are coming from somewhere. But when we only hear the, the story that adoption is an unequivocal good, it's saving a child, um, you know, we see these like happy stories in the news of the kids getting their, signing their paperwork and stuff. Um, it really obscures the fact that adoption, however um, kindly managed, you know, is really traumatic for multiple parties. And, um, you know, exactly what you were saying that in, in, in our current climate where we have the Supreme Court justices who three of whom are adoptive parents <laughs> um, say things like, well, you know, what's the big deal <laughs> because we need a supply of babies. I mean, you know, it, 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 again, with the history of adoption, you see that adoption is an industry, it's a business and there's extreme class and racial divides on who gets to adopt and who, um, you know, again, who's believed and who's supported. That's actually a great segue to where I wanted to go next in terms of who gets to adopt. And that's, um, I, I want to talk about transracial adoption, right? Jennifer and Sarah Hart were white, their children were black. Um, tell my listeners what transracial adoption is and what the debate was at the time of this tragedy and how this impact, this incident impacted that conversation. Yeah, so transracial adoption is any case of um, one race uh, parent adopting another race child, but it's almost always white parents adopting other race children, right? And again, with the history of adoption, we can see that there were like federal programs, for instance, that encouraged white parents to adopt Native children. And that's a big reason that the Indian Child Welfare Act even came to be because um, huge numbers of Native children were being removed from their homes, either to institutions or to adoption by white families. 
the National Association of Black Social Workers in the 70s wrote a big statement that was saying, you know, transracial adoption should not be given preference. Preference should be given to the culture that the child comes from. And that, you know, it's been a really contentious issue because the idea is there's kids in care and they're waiting. And if we have white people that can, you know, get them out of foster care, should they be waiting for, you know, but then we also see the history, Laura Briggs in her books, she's talked about this, the history of Black prospective adoptive parents being blocked from adoption, right? So the the power structure and the system is set up to benefit white people who want to parent through adoption almost exclusively. And it's challenging because you want to have a conversation about what's best for kids. And there are kids that need homes right now, and that's true. But there's also kids that are being removed from homes who shouldn't be removed from their homes. And there's, again, a stigma related to the families that they come from that ultimately is, is racist. That, that statement by the National Association of Black Social Workers did impact the field, right? And, and there were programs that, at least in theory, as you mentioned, tried to give preference to, to same-race um, adoptive um, practices. But then, 1994, you've got the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, which prevents race as factor. And what struck me about that was that is also the same year as the crime bill passed and thousands of Black folks are being funneled into prison, funneling even more Black children into the foster care system. Yes. And those things are so related. And even, you know, that that practice continued because there was the, you know, the welfare reform and the uh, disproportionate crack punishments, right? Um, existing at the same time as the Adoption and Safe Families Act was being passed in the in the nineties, which essentially sped up the timeline and said that you have to terminate rights if a kid has been in care for fifteen of the last twenty two months, and all those things together, right? Where you're incarcerating more black people. Um, if you're incarcerated, you can't have custody of your kid, right? So if you're incarcerated for two years, that automatically essentially sets your kids on a path for their rights to you to be terminated. So a lot of this legislation really does coexist in a way that ended up with Again, this disproportionality that we all pretend is this like intractable, confusing problem that we don't know where it came from. <laughs> we can see that we've made it that way, you know? You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Roxana Scarian about her book, We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America. Roxana, the adoptive parents, Sarah and Jennifer Hart, there who drove the car off the cliff, killing those children, they're dead. So no accountability there. Was there ever accountability at all for anyone in this case? And what could or should it have looked like? There really was no accountability. A part of the reason that I wrote the book was an attempt to at least make the make it known the ways that the system really failed these kids. Um, you know, again, there this story was all over the news. And I felt like I kept seeing versions of this story where 
the birth families were totally absent, but also the child welfare system was totally absent. It became this sort of it sensationalized, like individual, uh, you know, true crime kind of story. And that was really frustrating to me because, you know, as a person who reports on the child welfare system, there are so many ways that we fail as journalists <laughs> because we, if nobody understands how the system actually works, then we can't hold them accountable. Right. And I think this story, you know, there was no accountability because, you know, Texas just completely ignored it. There was no statement or anything. Um, you know, everything's confidential in the child welfare system. So if there wasn't like if I basically didn't figure out how to get some of these records, I think that none of this would ever be out there. And that's a shame. Talk to me about the title, Roxana. Um, story of love, death, and child removal in America. The death, the child removal in America. That is clear. Talk to us about the love part. I spent five years reporting this story. And so I got to know the birth families really well. Um, I want to return to Nathaniel for a second because Nathaniel, mm. again, Sherry's uh, partner and was the primary caretaker of the kids since they were born before they were removed. And Nathaniel, um, he was sort of my touchstone in this whole project. He uh, he ended up reuniting with Dante when Dante was 16 and regaining custody of him at that age. And he never gave up on Dante and he never gave up on the other kids until he knew that they had been murdered. They had been hoping and praying and waiting for the kids to get old enough so that they might return and find their family. Um, and the love that I saw exhibited was so strong because when Dante returned to Nathaniel, he was so traumatized and harmed by his time in the foster care system. And he's never quite recovered from that, you know, which makes him, it's a challenge, you know, and this was something that Nathaniel never gave up. And he said, you know, if he knocks, I'm going to answer. And it was a really beautiful testament, I think, to the love that exists, that that no piece of paper or official declaration could ever touch. You know, um, when you become a parent, that changes your identity forever. You spent so much time in this issue, Roxana, sitting with so much trauma um, and the stories, right? Thousands of these types of stories. From your perch, what changes, sweeping changes, um, I, I would put forth, um, need to happen with America's foster care system? I think there's ways that we, I mean, I think, you know, I think we need to abolish the child welfare system. So that's the, here, the top here. line. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that there's practical ways to limit the harm of the child welfare system that some of which are happening right now. Um, so like in Texas, a couple years ago, they passed a, a change in the definition of neglect. So it limits, severely limits the number of removals that courts can okay it, for just specifically neglect. 
um, that's that's making a difference in the numbers of kids that are removed in Texas. So that's something, right? I also think that uh, kids need good lawyers and parents need good lawyers. And those those are things that, you know, both the how the law is written and the advocates that you have in your corner, those things make a big difference in your ability to keep your children. And this may be tied to your previous answer, but my final question for you, Roxanne, is what is your hope for this book in the world? Well, that a a lot more people come to understand the harms of the child welfare system and hopefully walk away with more empathy for the people who are experiencing the system. Um, that's breaking up their families and and ruining their lives. My, you know, I guess that's the high level hope because I my I still retain the hope that when people know how harmful something is, we uh, will come together and try to to change it. You've been listening to Law Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest today was Roxana Ascarian, a Dallas-based investigative journalist. Her book is We Were Once a Family, A Story of Love, Death, and Child Removal in America. Roxana, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>